It's been almost impossible to avoid the intense media coverage and discussion about the events of September 11th. But what is the spiritual story behind the headlines? Where is the hope? In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, many Americans looked up for answers. Packed churches, a day of prayer, and a national desire for God's blessing all reflected America's acknowledgement of our need for God's direction and protection. Our country, like the New York skyline, has been wounded. But with God's help, restoration has begun. Come on up for the rising. Come on up with your hands in mine. My fellow citizens, for the last nine days, the entire world has seen for itself the state of our union, and it is strong. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign, and he's a God of love and mercy and compassion in the midst of suffering. Come on up for the rising. Come on up with your hands in mine. There are some times that God will become a shield to his people, and he will shield them, protect them, keep them from trouble. There are other times that God keeps us in trouble while we are being afflicted through the problem. Sometimes God will calm the storm for his child. At other times, God must calm his child in the storm while it rages. fellow Americans. Let's roll. What has changed in our country and in our hearts in the past 365 days? Is it possible for God to make even these things work together for good? In times of uncertainty, in times of insecurity, we can look to the Word of God and find assurance and guidance. Tonight, we will see that the Lord's strong hand is available to support us. And at the same time, we are challenged to put our faith into action and offer God's grace to those who are so desperately looking for answers. Well, before we get started, just look around tonight and look how many people have showed up to this event. Quite a lot of you have come. We're packed. One of the reasons, of course, is we all remember exactly where we were, do we not? A year ago when we heard the news. For me, it was quite literally a wake-up call. Not that I was asleep. I was up. I was driving. I was coming down to the church. And my wife called me on the telephone. I had just come out of Starbucks so that I could wake up. And I had my cup in hand, and I got the phone call, and she was in tears on the phone. She told me what had happened. I, like most everyone else, thought it was a little plane, a private plane, not knowing it was the first of two attacks on the World Trade Center and then the Pentagon and then that fateful crash in Pennsylvania. I also remember the following Sunday, the 16th, I believe, of the month, when numbers... In church, a little bit like tonight, but even more so, were at record levels all over America. For our church, we had the biggest crowd on that Sunday than we had at any Christmas, any Easter, anything special, even the Gulf War. 
We had more salvations that weekend. We had hundreds of people come forward. I also remember leaving the next day for New York City and flying into LaGuardia Airport and looking down out of the plane window over the smoking debris. You couldn't see anything. It was just all smoke over Manhattan. I remember going to Ground Zero. In fact, I was rummaging through and brought out tonight some of the things that I had to wear because I was a Red Cross worker, disaster relief worker, the helmet, the goggles, the mask because of the stench. I'll never forget what it felt like. I'll never in my life forget that smell. I remember meeting the chaplain for all of the armed forces of the United States whose office was in the Pentagon. He was in the Pentagon when the plane struck. He was there. In fact, I took out again and looked over this little medal of thanksgiving that he sent, just thanking the chaplains who were on duty that day and for those two weeks at Ground Zero. That's etched in my mind. I'll never forget that. Tonight, we want to look at a couple of questions, reminiscing over it a year later and looking ahead, because after all, we are not over this yet. It would seem that there's a new war on a new front that is coming any moment. It is, seems to be almost certain. And so, once again, people are wondering. Tonight, I want to ask and answer, hopefully, two questions. One is theological for most. One is personal for all. First is the question, why? The second is the question, what now? Before I jump right into it, we have received record email this week, and hundreds and hundreds of them. There's no way we could go through all of them. Some of them, I hope, will be answered tonight, but let me just run down a short list and get a few questions out. Babette wrote, as our world becomes more pluralistic, what can I do to protect my son from those influences? 9-11 affected him deeply, and his anger toward Muslims and bin Laden's group is very strong. I want to teach him to respond as Christ would, but I need help doing so. What would you tell him? Well, I've had a whole year to tell my son a lot of different things that I can't fit into a short answer, but I will say this. A child needs from a parent two things. Truth, don't sidestep the issue, answer the questions head on, and example. You can't divorce one from the other. You can't speak the truth but not live it. If you say God is important, God better be important in your life. The word must become flesh as a principle. Truth that we hear and receive and acknowledge must be lived out in front of children. And let me say that I know you want to protect your kids, and we do, we should. That's our job, to protect our children. But there comes a point where if you shelter them too much, you can actually overprotect them to the point where once they get launched out of the house, they will be unable to deal with the real world. That is part of the real world. As graphic, as horrible, as life-changing, as stress-giving as it is, I would also say, however, guard how much reality he sees or she sees at any given point. You can OD on television. And I don't just mean on crummy shows. You can OD on news. 
You get a lot of bad news when you watch the news. That's why we come here. Because <laughs> the Bible gives us the truth, the good news. So we must have that balance. A second question comes from Carlos. And he asks, and I don't know if we're flashing these on the screen or not. I think we are. How would I address a friend's concern about having children? They have one, and they have indicated to me that since September 11th, they do not want to bring any more children into this world. You know, I think that probably resonates with a lot of parents here who have children or maybe have considered having other children. And I do want to say, if you are a Christian tonight, this world needs the kind of children that only you can provide. I wouldn't look at this as a way to not have kids. I'd, I'd do everything you can to put Christian kids into this world. We need light and we need salt. After all, that is a Muslim strategy to outchild the world to have as many children as they possibly can so that, not today, but in the future, there will be far more Muslims giving the chance of far more radical ones than there are any other kind. So the world needs your kids. I wouldn't shrink back from that. Psalm 127 answers that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Another question comes from Erica. Is there any validity to people outside our country seeing the U.S. as the great Satan or as modern Babylon? We are one of the most free societies, and we do not use that freedom, and we do use that freedom to be immoral. And then in parenthesis, she writes, not that we deserve to have planes rammed into our buildings full of innocent people, of course. Is there any validity to America being the great Satan? Well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Let's see, that would mean all in England, all in Sudan, all in Iran, all in Pakistan and Afghanistan, all in America. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think what happened on September 11th was evil. I think it was wrong. But sometimes I do wonder what goes through the mind of Muslims as they look at American news and watch us desperately trying to pull in God we trust or one nation under God and obliterate God from our landscape. And i got to tell you, quite honestly, I agree with Al-Qaeda's view of America. Not that it is the great Satan or single it out, but that it has become an immoral nation. Not that it deserves planes being rammed into it any more than looking at somebody saying, well, you you deserve cancer. You deserve a car accident. That's ridiculous. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus said. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Is America the great Satan? The world is filled with Satan's ideology. And the answer isn't a political party or belonging to a nation. The answer is salvation. And that comes not nationally, but individually. Now, I know it's very popular to say, God bless America. But, you know, God doesn't just bless nations inadvertently. There's a condition to his blessing. America must bless God. 
if America wants to see God bless America. That begins with us. It begins with the church. Because doesn't the Bible say judgment must begin where? In the house of God. That's us. Well, that's really all the time we have. We have many more, and some of them will be answered, I hope, tonight, and I just don't have the time to go through them all. But let's open our Bibles tonight. There's two places you're going to look at, John chapter 9 and Luke chapter 13. We're going to refer to them. And as you're turning to them and marking them, I want to jump right into the big question that people have had. And I guess I didn't know how big it was till last week and this week. This event has been covered more on network television than any other event in American history this week. And some of the specials that I've seen aired on television have been about God, faith, and tragedy. And uh, some of them have been interesting. Some have been weird, frankly. A couple of the specials showed the pathetic display of some in the clergy who, because of 9-11, have just abandoned all trust and hope in God. So people ask, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there evil in the world? That is, I think, the oldest question of humanity. Job asked it. The disciples asked it. The Galileans asked it. You and I have asked it. Everyone has. At every funeral of every firefighter, police officer... Pentagon worker, World Trade Center worker, those who were on airplanes at every funeral, that went through the minds of people. Every time a rerun showed the planes darting into the World Trade Center, people under their breath murmured, Why? God, why? Max Lucado, a brilliant author, frames this question with a metaphor. He says, there's a window in your heart through which you can see God. Once upon a time, the window was clear. Your view of God was crisp. You could see God as vividly as you could see a gentle valley or a hillside. The glass was clean, the pain unbroken. You knew God. You knew how he worked. You knew what he wanted you to do. No surprises, nothing unexpected. You knew that God had a will and you continually discovered what it was. Then, suddenly, the window cracked. A pebble broke the window. A pebble of pain. Perhaps the stone struck when you were a child and a parent left home forever. Maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before the window was cracked, but then the pebble came. Was it a phone call? We have your daughter at the station. You better come down. Was it a letter on the kitchen table reading, I've left, don't try to reach me, don't try to call me, it's over, I don't love you anymore? Was it a diagnosis from the doctor? Whatever the pebbles form, the result was the same, a shadowed, shattered window. The pebble missled into the pain and shattered it. The crash echoed down the halls of your heart. 
cracks shot out from the point of impact, creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And suddenly, God was not so easy to see. The view that was once so crisp had changed. You turned to see God and his figure was distorted. It was hard to see him through the pain. For a lot of people, September 11th was the pebble that shattered the window. I was with Max Lucado and I showed him ground zero when I was there. I showed him around and he had the same reaction. Man, why did this happen? Suffering, evil, pain comprise the number one roadblock of keeping people away from God. At least, that is their excuse. Asaph, in Psalm 73, was very honest when he said, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful. I've cleansed my heart in vain, said the psalmist. It's an age-old issue that theologians and philosophers term theodicy, a fancy word that grapples with the question of how can an all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful God allow evil to coincide in his universe. And everybody has wrestled with it. In fact, a national survey done by the Barna Research Institute, asking people if you could ask God one question and you knew that he would actually answer you right there, what would you ask him? Most people said, I want to ask God why there's suffering and why there's evil in this world. Now, what makes it worse isn't just that there's evil in the world, but that it happens to what we would regard as innocent people. We would feel better if it were all the bad, ungodly, naughty people that got broken arms and Parkinson's disease, we'd say, okay, that's celestial justice. But why does it happen to innocent people? Why does it happen to so many of them? That's the question tonight. Why? Why, God, did you allow this to happen? Now, let me throw this in as we try to wrap our minds around this. You should understand that that question is more hotly debated in America than anywhere else in the world. In first world countries, most developed countries, we deal with that issue more and grapple with it more so than countries who suffer far more than we ever will and hold tenaciously to the concept of God. I think that's interesting. Now, why is that? One of the reasons is we in the West are, face it, a hedonistic culture. We are pleasure-driven. We believe the highest value in life is pleasure. If pain interrupts our fun or our pleasure, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. So we grapple with it. We deal with it. Even though we know, as Christians especially... That suffering can make a person a better person, a person of greater depth and greater character. We regard all suffering as just blatantly wrong and evil. I wanted to throw that in as we try to get to that answer. 
There have been many explanations offered as to why. Now, one of the ways it's answered is the there can't be a God explanation. There can't be a God. There can't be a God because there's so much evil in the world. Listen to that. Did you hear that? There can't be a God because there's so much evil in the world. But when folks say there's so much evil, it must mean they have a notion of some supreme good to say in comparison there's so much evil. Example, if one kid on the test gets 90 and another kid gets 40, it presupposes that 100 is the real standard, right? Otherwise, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. Your 20 is his 80. We are presupposing there is a standard. Well, if there is no God, where do we get the standard of good by which we judge something is evil? It's a moot point. It's an absolutely moot point if there's no absolute good, no absolute God. C.S. Lewis the professor of Renaissance literature at Cambridge noted that, and he said, if the universe is so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? You see, the very presence of our ideas that there is an evil and a good has to be accounted for. Why is it that over 90% of all the people who have ever lived in conditions far worse than we live in and have had far more disasters than we have faced, still cling to the belief in God. Another way some people answer it is that not there is no God, but, well, God would love to help, but he can't. Explanation. You say, Skip, are there really people that say that? All over the place, unfortunately. Their God is an absolutely worthless God to believe in. It's the God of the deist. The philosophy is theistic finiteism. What it means is there's a God out there. He just he can't do anything. He's impotent. He'd like to, but he's learning. He's growing. And I've read one report that said September 11th took God completely by surprise. He was just as shocked as you are when you turned on the news. Now, there's a popular author that a lot of you know about that believes that. He wrote a very famous book, a bestseller. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's what he believes. I'm not saying he's not a nice guy. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy. I've sat and listened to him for a long time, and I've read his stuff. But he says, concerning God, God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he can't always arrange it. Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check. And he continues encouraging us to forgive God. And pray for God. Now, I'm confused. (laughs) Who's God? If I'm going to forgive God, doesn't that make me God? Who's greater than whom? 
and pray for God? Who, who would you pray to for God? <laughs> I think, frankly, that's both an arrogant and a worthless position. That's not a God worth believing in in my book. An impotent God. In John chapter 9, we read that Jesus passed by and he saw a man who was blind from birth and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. The problem of evil, the question of evil, the question of why. Whose fault is this? Who's the great Satan here? Who can we pin this problem of suffering and evil upon? Is it his fault? Or his parents that he was born blind? Now, that sounds odd to even ask, doesn't it? There was a belief 2,000 years ago in Judaism that believed in prenatal sin. You could sin in the womb, causing your birth to be a congenital anomaly. That, That fetus must have sinned for him to be born blind, or was it his parents' fault? Notice Jesus' answer. He, he doesn't really, in this section, grapple with the issue of evil. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, that's not the issue, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, and the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with his saliva, And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. I don't see that on a lot of Christian healing programs, do you? Spit in the, make mud and slap it in the guy's eye. Jesus did it here. What would Jesus do? What you just read. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and he came back seeing. Jesus was asked this question and he didn't give a pat answer. But he did underscore something I want to leave you with. And that is the sovereignty of God. That God is absolutely sovereign. That some suffering is due to natural causes. Some suffering is due to sinful causes. But God still is sovereign. Now listen to this carefully. God did not create evil. But God did create the possibility of evil. The potentiality of evil. How did he do that? By making you and me. By making creatures that are unlike bears and gnats and bananas. That have this incredible power called free will. Volition, choice, that's the potentiality. He makes a man and a woman that can choose good or evil. Mankind, though God did not create evil, only the potential for evil, mankind actualized the potential. Now, the next question would be, well then, how could a loving God create people with free will? Why did he give people free will? Now think about that question. That's a pretty easy one to figure out. You can't have a world with genuine freedom, with genuine love, 
unless there is the potential for that creature to choose the wrong thing. Otherwise, you'd be a robot. If there is genuine freedom in the earth, and there is, and it flows wonderfully in this country, unlike so many others, but because there is that free choice, there must be the potential to choose evil. Otherwise, it's not freedom. And really, the question isn't even a good question. How could a God of love allow their evil? That's sort of like saying, why aren't there round squares? It's, it's a lame philosophical question. There must be evil as long as you have creatures that can choose freely. Mankind actualized the potentiality. And by the way, if there were no free will, there wouldn't be love, which is the highest value. There's to be love, which is part of a loving God's nature. There has to be a creature who can choose that. Otherwise, it would be programmed in and it wouldn't be love at all. Questions that people have asked since September 11th. One of the big ones is, how could people in their right mind commit such acts? How could anybody get in airplanes and uh, take over and take all these innocent people and ram them into buildings to make a point? How could people do that? I could ask that about anything. You know what the first, the first crime that ever committed was terrorism. Cain murdered in a terrorist act his brother Abel. Why? Why did he do that? I could ask that about Hitler. He massacred six million Jews. It made what happened September 11th very small in comparison. Six million Jews, Hitler and Stalin. Why does a man abduct a child and murder it and leave it by the side of the road in California? Why does a mother drown her children? It's the same issue. And here's the answer. It is the wretchedness of the human heart. It is the sin nature. It is the potential that exists in every human being. You say, oh, no. I just asked you to read some of the polls that were done by James Patterson and Peter Kim on a book called The Day America Told the Truth and ask, how much money, if we gave you this much money, would you... Do this? Would you do that? Would you leave your wife, leave your husband? Would you steal? Would you kill? And you would be surprised, maybe not, by the answers given. If you gave them enough, very many people would do it. In Romans chapter 3, concerning mankind in his natural state, it says their feet are swift to shed blood. And if you add to that the satanic deception that says what happened a year ago in New York City in the Pentagon was not killing, but was an act which would send a person directly to heaven. Now you've got something, not only the depravity of man, you have a satanically inspired religion. It's what it is. You know that in Islam there's no assurance of salvation? You could do everything every day for years, for your whole life, keep all of the laws they say, and ask a Muslim, if you die, will you go to heaven? I don't know. There's no way they know because God is capricious. God is unpredictable to them. God at the last minute could say, "Ah, I don't want you in heaven. You're going to go to hell. There's only one assurance of salvation, and that is death in a jihad. An act of giving your life 
to free the cause will guarantee you a place in paradise, according to the theology. Osama bin Laden said, one day of jihad is worth 70 trips to Mecca, and the Muslim is only required to keep one. Another question people have asked is, how could this happen if God is in control? Listen, here's why. Because everyone dies. Now, I I hope, really, that you'll walk away tonight realizing something. Every human being, so far, has died. Oh, there's been some exceptions. There's been a resurrection here and there. But for the most part, people die. It's appointed and a man wants to die. I stood in the World Trade Center. I wept with firemen. I've watched my close relatives die. I'm not divorced from this issue. What happened to them on September 11th wasn't anything that was going to happen to them. They were going to die. What happened to those people on September 11th is what's going to happen to me and you. It might be for me a plane crash or a car crash or it might be cancer or it might be a host of any other thing. But every person will die. It's appointed unto man once to die. Go to Luke chapter 13. I'm glad we brought up the issue, what would Jesus do? Because frankly, I think most people have no clue. They have a syrupy little idea of Jesus just smiling at everything and everyone. And they brought up a very important issue that we're dealing with tonight. Luke chapter 13. There were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate had committed an act of terrorism. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoa! He goes on. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, this huge towering structure outside of Jerusalem fell down and killed people, 18 of them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Think of how many thousands of people have died in floods. Think of the the great flood. Everybody died. Everyone. The issue isn't Am I going to die? Everybody will, right? You know that. You got that part. Here is the issue. Here's the heart of all the issue. The issue is you don't have to die and go to hell. That's the issue. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The only thing that takes away the fear of death is faith in Jesus Christ. That takes away the fear of of the future, the fear of death. Though thousands surround me, David said, I will not fear. What did Paul say? He said, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. 
People ask me, Skip, where was God on September 11th? Where was God in New York City? He was all over that place. He was. I was down on ground zero. And I had FBI agents, police officers in New York, firefighters, coming up, seeing the Red Cross worker, I announce I'm a chaplain, wanting us to pray, wanting us to talk to them. God was there in that pit of despair. I was summoned by a chaplain to World Trade Center Number 6, the U.S. Customs Building. Just a piece of it remained. The whole center core had caved in. And I walked to it, and the chaplain pointed me to a cross. In fact, we've shown you the picture before. You have it on your bulletin tonight. The firefighter that took me there and showed me the scene had tears in his eyes. He was a big, big guy. One of America's finest. One of New York's finest. And he was telling me about all the bodies he recovered that day and the day before in that place and how despairing he had become. His hopes were, were drowned until he called out to God, he said. He said, I called, I called out to God and I looked and there was this cross. It was right there in front of me. And he goes, I knew it was a sign from God because he, he preached Jesus died on a cross. He's here, and this firefighter was so elated that God showed up at ground zero to give him a sign. In fact, he said, I'm calling the archbishop. I'm calling Giuliani. I'm getting this cross taken out of here as a memorial. And you know what? He did. It's up at a church on display to this day. The cross gave him hope, gave him a sign. God was all over that place. I was given this statistic today that 2,803 people were killed or are missing in the World Trade Center. The capacity of the World Trade Center is 50,000 people. On a typical day, 30,000 people are at work in the middle of the day in the World Trade Center. 30,000 people in the Trade Center. On September 11, 2001, between five and 7,000 people were inside when the jets struck. 1,402 people died in the North Tower. 614 died in the South Tower. 15,000 escaped. Escaped. 16 survivors from the upper stories that were burning with the fire. God was there. Final question, and we close with this. This is the practical part. What now? What do we do now? What does the future look like? There have been changes, you know. There have been some little changes. You have to wait longer to get an airplane. You can't park next to a federal building. I'm a chaplain for the FBI. You've got to park. You, the whole underside of that building is blockaded off now. There are bigger changes. Al-Qaeda headquarters is dismantled though they still reside in 60 to 90 countries around the world. Two of their chief commanders are missing or dead. Hundreds of their fighters, terrorist fighters, are out of the picture. There were spiritual changes. Both houses of Congress, as we saw in the video, saying, God bless America. Church attendance swelled. One man said, God has been in my life since I can remember, but I talked to him more after September 11th than ever before. Wonderful changes. 
But has it really changed? Is it a lasting change? That's the question I want to leave tonight. Is it a lasting change? Let me just take you back. You remember that Tuesday? Some of you were here. At 12 noon, we had a prayer meeting. There were hundreds of people just a couple hours after the attack. That night, we had a prayer meeting, full house. Next night, Wednesday night, full house, bigger. Friday, National Day of Prayer, President Bush called at 12 noon. place was packed. Next Sunday again, people, but a little less. Next Sunday, a little bit less. George Barnes says this. During the past 12 months, there has been no lasting change in people's religious practices. Immediately after the attacks, church attendance spiked for several weeks, rising to about half the adult public attending religious services during a typical week. That attendance boon proved to be short-lived as levels were back to normal by November. What has happened since then? Where are they now? Where's all this fervor? And I'll ask tonight, I am so glad you're here tonight. Where will you be next Wednesday or Sunday? You know, Jesus gave a parable about a sower who went out to sow some seed. And he said, you know, some seed was scattered and it fell on soil where it was choked up by thorns. And Jesus illuminated the meaning of that parable. He said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the seed and it became unfruitful. You know what's happened since last year? A lot of things have choked people's emotional commitments that they made a year ago. Deceitfulness of riches, cares of this world, concern about other things. When Jesus was asked about this man born blind in John chapter 9, it's interesting how he just sort of sidesteps the whole issue. Whose sin? Was it this guy or his parents? He didn't go, well, you know, there's... Let me just tell you the philosophical debate here. He just sort of didn't deal with that. He just said, while it's day, it's time to work. Because the night is coming when no man can work. In other words, as believers... As a Christian person, I have a responsibility to respond to the evil I see by doing good while it is day. Because the night is coming when no one can work. And Jesus healed that man. So I would say to all of us tonight, in the midst of a world where terrorism is an ongoing threat, and we're all worried about what if I'm next, what if we're next, what if this church is next? This church could be targeted. Look at it as an opportunity, number one, to ease the suffering and the pain of those who are hurting while you have day. Number two, preach the gospel. Don't give people pablum. Tell them the answer, the solution to the sin that we're all born with. And that's Jesus Christ. And number three, Get yourself right with God. Get right, stay right. Live right. Walk right. You know, the question that everybody asks is, where were you on September 11, 2001? You'll always remember that. My question is, where are you tonight? Where are you now? That's over. What about now? What about your future? 
You know what God showed at the cross? God showed at the cross that the very worst thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity became the very best thing. You know what the worst tragedy of human history is? Deicide, the death of God in the flesh. From a human standpoint, to see Jesus come from heaven and then nailed to a cross, we would step back and say that is the most hideous, worst crime that humanity could ever commit to kill God in human flesh. But it was by his death that people can be saved, making the very worst thing the very best thing. Now, if God can do that with his own son, can't God do that with other tragedies? He can. He will. Be resilient. Don't just stand up with the American spirit. Stand up with God's spirit. Don't just be filled with patriotic pride. Be filled with God, with the Holy Spirit. This world needs answers. They ask good questions. And guess what? You've got great answers. Articulate them. Tell them. Heavenly Father, the question for us tonight, and I pray that every single person here would take it to heart, isn't where were we a year ago, but where are we right now tonight spiritually? Some of us have to admit that we were very, very fervent, and that fervency has waned. Complacency has taken over. We've returned back to being who we were before. Lord, we realize, as Steve shared with us tonight, the absolute uncertainty from a human standpoint of longevity. We don't know how long we're going to live here. This could be the very last night of our lives. For many who died in that trade center, the choices are all over. It's, it's too late. For those who died this last week in car accidents or of diseases, these issues of choice are over. But it's not for us. It's appointed unto man once to die. We don't know when that appointment is. Help us to make the right choice now.